All right. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, this is Eric Ellison with the Digital Education Podcast and uh, super excited for today's conversation as I'm with Chris Citizen-Stewart, who is an education activist, a writer, speaker, podcaster, and influencer focusing on elevating the policies and practices that show the most promise for ensuring children thrive. Um, he's had the privilege to be the chief influencer at Brightbeam, a digital advocacy team that amplifies grassroots voices through EdPost and other digital platforms. Um, I heard Chris speak for the first time in 2020, right before the COVID shutdown, um, but have been following him on Twitter for some time. And then also follow um, the Eight Black Hands podcast that he's on fairly regularly. And, and one of the things I love about you know, you, Chris, and, and about your work is, is that you consistently introduce yourself as a father and that that really drives who you are as someone who lives and breathes edu education policy. So I, I have really two kind of intro questions before we, mm -hmm. you know, dive deeper into really the blog that you wrote in April. But the, the intro questions, one is I'm wondering like where the interest in ed policy came from. And then I'm also really, really intrigued by the name that you use, you know, uh, in, in social media and all those types of places, Citizen Stewart. Mm. Well, the first one is really easy because if I wasn't a dad, if I hadn't become a dad at 22, I probably wouldn't care very much about education. My own education was really unremarkable. Went to a lot of different schools growing up uh, and somewhere in the middle of my education, things just wiped out. I started losing ground in about sixth grade, like right after sixth grade, I started losing a lot of ground. I had missed some concepts in one of the schools that I was in, in math. And then when I transferred to a new school, there was just no making it up. Uh, so I never really recovered, especially in math, never really recovered. And it kind of wiped out my, my high school experience. I had to graduate under, you know, alternative programs through an alternative programs, all of that, that didn't really register with me until I entered the work world. And I kind of, um, was at the bottom of the food chain, so to speak, literally, because I was actually uh, a cook <laughs> and a server in restaurants. And anybody who's listening to this, who's been in service industry world, who's like done cooking or that, it's this whole world, this universe that you live in, where you know you're serving people all day long who took a better turn in life than you did, right? Like I was serving people on a pretty regular basis, where it was obvious to me that uh, things were going to be different for me materially. But when I became a dad at 22 and I was still doing that work, I didn't feel like there was a lot of trajectory for me, a lot of hope for where I was going. But for my kid, I was like just obsessed with what it meant, like what my responsibility meant now. Like I, I can remember the first time holding my my son uh, by myself uh, uh, <laughs> and like literally being alone for the first time with the kid, with the baby, thinking to myself, who thought it was okay like, am I really by myself? There's no backup here. There's no one else in this room. It's just me with a baby. Uh, I don't think we talk enough as men about the absolute fear of failure uh, in fatherhood. And when you're the first one holding that baby and, you know, first time you feel like you're really responsible for something. Before then, it was a lot of couch surfing, a lot of, you know, kind of late nights and that sort of thing. Now, all of a sudden, I'm holding a baby. That laid the groundwork for everything that you and I are talking about today. Like that just fear of of not wanting to mess it up, uh, the feeling super insufficient, like the feeling like I was too ignorant of what it meant like to get a kid a good life. And so education was a thing that had always been preached to me, even though mine wasn't good, had always been preached to me by family as the way out, like the thing that 
that you focused on. So from kindergarten and first grade and third grade, man, I bit the bullet and I just became kind of like a, uh, a militant dad in this one way. I was super ignorant of, of all these systems and what was going to, you know, what it was going to take, but I took all the notes. Uh, I read all the stuff I could read, you know, like, what do you need to know in first grade? I remember these books, like what to know in first grade, what to know in second grade or whatnot. And I wasn't, the best dad, I was a student of being the best dad. I was like asking questions of other fathers, especially ones who were educated, like ones that I worked with and trusted. What do you do or what would you do? And just being a student of that is what created the person I am today, you know, who became because that just evolved by about sixth grade when we had to make some tough school choices. I felt like I was becoming like more educated about what that meant. That was the first time we had to make a really tough decision about choice, like where to put my kid. Uh, and that decision, I felt a lot of agency, felt like I had information, I had learned a lot. And then I felt useful to other people because when we did make a choice, I went and, and like talked to all the parents at the school we left who were friends of my kid, like the, his friends' kids. So he, when he made a school choice, oftentimes after that, there was a cohort that came with him. I felt kind of like an organizer. And I was like, I have some value here. I have some worth. I may not be the smartest person in the world. Uh, I may not know everything, but I know something of value. I have some purpose. I have some use. Um, and that that kept growing. So, you know, the, eventually I ran for school board in 2006 or seven, not necessarily with the idea that I was going to win, with the idea that I was just going to have my say. I was going to run and I was going to have my say. I was going to make the people listen to me. And, you know, I was going to give speeches and I was going to go to the candidate forums. And I was just going to, you know, I'm, I've, you know, I've learned a little something now. Look at me. I'm fancy guy now. Right. And I won. I won 42,000 votes more than it takes to, 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 um, to be elected as a state rep. I got, you know, I won a, a seat, an elected seat on a urban school board. And boy, that was like four years of a college experience. That was like, that was my, learning that the system in a lot of ways is a business and that kids aren't the priority oftentimes and that learning and learning outcomes is often secondary to a whole bunch of other stuff that we focused on, you know, like politics. And you ask where the name Citizen Stewart came from. So for those four years that I was on the school board, I was Director Stewart to everybody, right? I had a parking spot. It's a Director Stewart. Um, I would go to meetings with all the fancy people and all their fancy book learning. And they would say, here's Director Stewart. Um, you know, and parents would call me and they would say, Director Stewart, I think you're, you know, whatever. And I can remember I had a very good friend who was one of my biggest informants on special education policy who um, said to me, Chris, you know, when I decided I wasn't going to run again and I was going to go back into the regular world, she said, do you think people are going to listen to you anymore when you're not director Stewart anymore? And I said, do you, who do you think is more dangerous, director Stewart who has to live by all these guidelines or citizen Stewart who's free to tell the public the truth and to be a good citizen by telling the public the truth? And she was like, uh... Touche. <laughs> Basically like, gotcha. You probably are way more dangerous as citizen Stewart than you would be as director Stewart. And that's where the name came from. Over time, it's grown in its importance to me around what does it mean to be a good citizen? Like I had to wrestle with questions. What does it mean to be a good dad? What does it mean to be an informed dad or an active dad? I didn't know. I didn't know when it, I didn't have a great answer for that uh, when, when it hit me in my early twenties. And over time now, I feel like if I had a ministry of anything, 
fits to answer that question of how should we be good citizens? You know, how should we be good fathers, good dads, good citizens, especially in this education debate? And it does include things like wanting the best for all kids, wanting to make sure that the entire community, our entire country is doing well, uh, making sure that, you know, it's the Paul Wellstone thing. You know, we all do better when we all do better. Um, having good faith kind of mandates like that to me makes you a good citizen. Well, and I think so much of that's where I've, you know, as I've followed you and listened to you and, and just uh, Twitter, I mean, I love, I've loved kind of, you know, just following you on Twitter is, is the one thing that I love about you in, in this current place is in that sense of the building up in a, in a, in a, in a culture, in a community, in a setting where it's like, what does it mean to, you know, where you're trying to answer, what does it mean to be a good citizen and build up and create and develop? You, you see a world that wants to, I, I'm going to use my terminology, right? That seemingly wants to tear down, burn mm -hmm. down, destroy, very, you know, kind of the opposite of what you're talking about being for all kids, you know, and, and seeing all schools thrive, you know, being really anti and really, and that's what's drawn me to you because of your approach. And, 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 and then also, I think one of the things that, you know, is, is your approach of truth telling, um, and that's what drew me to this to this blog so much because I think I've found myself in 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 the space of like where do I fit, um, where do my friends fit? And and you wrote this blog. Neither political party has an education message worth hearing. The critical issues of teaching, learning, assessments, and academic outcomes get less attention with each election. And and in it, you say my bottom line is that I'm sick of the left right dumb duopoly. And I'm reading, um, and I'm reading for a science-based um, third option to their lack of vision. I wish the adults of years ago, who were able to occupy a rare middle space long enough to form a shared pursuit of better student achievement for all, could return from exile. Yeah. And I feel like very much of like myself is I feel like I, I, I mean, I started that journey in about 2002, my own journey. And, and it's like, yeah, where do I fit? That exile, that statement really resonated with me. Can, can you share more about like how you're looking at things and even some of those, that that blog where you wrote, it's like where, you know, you even, I think, wrestle in that place of like, hey, how do I be, you know, it's helpful. How am I a good citizen? But where do I fit? Or where does this fit? Or where does this more robust care for student success achievement and thriving sit mm -hmm. in this conversation? You know, it's interesting because I was a person of the 80s. I was a child of the 80s. I was a, you know, a, a, the, my 20s, the golden years of a lot of youth is, uh, was my night was the 90s. Uh, and in the late 90s, I was reading a lot of things that were just like self-educational, like um, that I was supposed to read, that other people were reading. So I read things like uh, keep the main thing, the main thing. Uh, you know, uh, the, the Covey stuff around keeping the main thing, the main thing. Um, and it, that impacts the way I think about these things because, and there was also a Will Greider book years ago called who will tell the public, who will tell the truth or who will tell the people, I think it was called things like that sat with me. Like the only thing you really have going for you is the truth and some evidence basis that we can share, some shared facts, some shared data that we can have, and a commitment to whether it's partisan or not, like not being with a tribe, you know, being for truth, no matter who says it. Um, and when it comes to this education stuff, like 
there's a few things that drive me. One, I'm just desperate for somebody to come forth with a big vision rather than a way to tear us all down. You know, there, there, uh, I've said it a lot. There are people that are about, you know, addition and multiplication. And then there are people that are about division and subtraction. So when we think about like the division and subtraction way of looking at ed policy, it's, you know, who can we hate? Who can we marginalize? Who can get out of the thing? Who can we blame? Who can we be angry at? Who can, you know, the daily outrage. That is good short-term fuel because it makes people kind of like, you know, it gets clicks, you know, it's the clicky stuff, right? But it really is short-term fuel. It doesn't get us anywhere as a society. It does nothing for children. It doesn't do anything for educational outcomes. It doesn't get us any further. The the addition and the multiplication is, in my mind, what's the big vision for what are the most promising ideas? What are the things that are working? Where's the evidence? Where's the science behind anything that gets kids further down the pipe? We have to just start with data, for one. And there's anti-intellectualism on both sides of the fence, the left and the right right now, about data. What do we know about where our kids are academically? And how do we know it? What's What are the instruments? And once we know that we have these ginormous gaps across all groups too, by the way, like ginormous gaps, um, we just know some things are working better than others. Well, then what are those things that are working better than others? And what can we do to make sure that most of those things become an agenda? Like that should be our agenda. Our agenda should be the things that we know that are actually improving educational outcomes. Like let's reintroduce that as a thing that both parties should care about. Both parties um, and all parties should be on the hook for whatever theory you have, you need to show me the outcomes of it. I don't care what it is. I'm, you know, cause I've said it many times, I've been, I'm agnostic about your education model. I'm religious about outcomes. So I just want to see the outcomes. Well, and I love that. I love that. So, okay. So, so help me because it is in a lot of ways, how, how do we, and not how do we create, but for you, you know, that big vision for what this is, it includes choice, right? You know, parental, you know, choice with schools, but it also allows for the distinct, you know, for schools to be distinctive. And and I've appreciated how you've pointed out the 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 kind of the hypocrisy of some of these places where it's like, hey, we're going to give greater choice, but then but then the state government is going to dictate, you know, more details, you know, for those schools mm-hmm. that then get the votes or the clicks or you know or just those types of things. But then, like I look at the background I come from, and it is much more, yeah, choice and distinctiveness without the accountability of those outcomes right we we want to so so dig deeper on a little bit of that big vision that you would have and say hey how can we get back to a place where where it is you know choice distinctiveness outcomes you know or you know accountability part of it is that accountability factor yeah i think choices run its course as kind of like a brand and yeah. as a philosophy, I think the thing at the bottom line is everybody is born with this baby. You put this baby in a person's hand and you know that the next 12 years of their lives are about intellectual development and who should have control of that intellectual development and what should go into that intellectual development. This is a better way of framing things to me beyond what school should you go to? Because what I've learned and I've been radicalized since the pandemic is School choice as a brand and as a premise is about like having a choice of schools, 
Um, but you just raised an issue that I think has become super important to me recently is some of the same people that are pushing school choice are limiting the freedom of what you can learn when you get to that school. And let me be specific. There are people passing laws that literally subtract books from libraries, subtract schools of thought, remove things from the world fund of information. Now, if you wanted your child to be a genius, they would know everything in the world fund of information. They would know Western and Eastern societies. They would know history. They would know every event that took place, just genius level, like black belt level of being smart. You would know all the things. So you have to be wary of any leader that wants to take things out of the library, take things off the table, wants to pass laws that create kind of like state-sponsored thought control. Thou shalt not learn about Marxism or whatever. I want my kid to know the ins and outs of Marxism, capitalism, uh, socialism, all the isms, whatever, because they're smarter with each of those that they know and they know the connections between them. So I'm really unnerved by the movement to reduce what we can learn, like remove things from the table. So you can have school choice, all the school choice you want. Florida is the school choiciest model in the entire world, right? There's no state in the United States that's choicier than, than uh, Florida when it comes to it. And there is no state that leads educational censorship at the same time more than Florida right now. And that actually is what radicalized me about school choice being insufficient was, okay, now I have to talk about learner freedom, learner choice. Because see, my family might want to learn some of those um, black histories that you're removing from the libraries, even if your family doesn't, right? Your family may not have any interest in those, just like my family might not have any interest you know, in German music. Um, but I would never fight to have German music removed from anything, anywhere. Even if my family doesn't want access to German music, I wouldn't want it removed. So I think I've elevated a level I just want somebody to talk about how we get every American child, regardless of their background, regardless of their politics and their religion and their creed, uh, a, a fitting intellectual development that makes them useful in their own lives, sets them up to have a personally meaningful life. And then you have to start thinking about da data markers that let you know that that's happening. Like, okay, Chris, we want all kids to have a personally meaningful life to be set up you know, by their schooling to be able to, to have that. What's that mean? Okay, well, cool. Let's answer that question. I want people a vision to start saying, if you graduate after 13 years in an in, in education system incapable of finding a place in the American economic mainstream, something has gone wrong, right? Well, what I just said is absolutely true. We are producing millions of graduates every year that are not able to find a place. I was one of those people. Like I could not find a place, you know, the whole go to college, get out, um, get a job, get a car, buy a house, have a baby, get another car. You know what I mean? This this kind of American process of becoming middle class. Um, that actually happened for my child. It didn't happen for me, right? I had to like, you know, my 20s and 30s were interrupted a little bit on that path. But for him, he he made it all the way through that and came out the other end and and is doing that fully now living his best life at 30, you know, he's 31 now, 32. Um, so that's the big vision I want. I want somebody to stand up and say, Hey, you know, we're going to get, uh, as many kids as possible on the path to American prosperity. You know, the, the Ford F-150 in every driveway, the, you know, the, <laughs> and it doesn't have to be that. I'm talking to you today from a place in Minnesota where that would be kind of like the, the that would be the place you would want to end up a lawn, a front lawn, a back lawn, back, you know, front yard, backyard uh, that's well manicured and tailored. 
uh, of course, because we're a Lutheran society up here. And, uh, <laughs> you know, everybody, there's pride of ownership and the truck, you know, and the house and the mortgage. And it doesn't have to be fancy. It's just yours, mm-hmm. right? Well, we do it where I live. We have an educational pathway that'll get you at least through two two years of college into a trade, into a job of some sort, or into a four-year college or more, right? We have McAllister here, which is like the Harvard of the Midwest, we call it. We like to call it you know, things like that in Minnesota. So you think we're fancy, but that that's the vision that I would want is someone to stop saying, who can we hate today? And someone who would say, how can we get every kid educated? Uh, and how will we know that it's happening? Okay. So I'm going to read a little next section from, from that blog. Um, and, and, and really want to, I think it's, it's a little bit of like that big vision. Um, I'm all in, right. And, and so, but it is that question of like, how do we get there? Right. Or how do we, how do we use that? You know, the different platforms for me, you know, I, I think about the different places where I exist as a, as a, you know, education researcher policy, but then practitioner, you know, all of these different places of where I sit, but, but you say in this, uh, in the blog and, and bear with me for a second while we talk about the certainty of things we learn from polls perplexing questions remain because of the differences between what people tell pollsters and what they do in real life so you you, you mentioned people of color support school choice uh, they vote for people who kill school choice uh, white republican voters who are the most agreeable to choice vote for gop candidates who slow walk or block choice proposals or even you know, now where you're talking about, you know, the example in Florida, right, or limit learner choice once they've created school choice. You mentioned that white liberal parents highly value integration and diversity, yet they often select schools with the least diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do know, based on some research, like American public schools in particular have become less diverse over the last, you know, 20 to 40 years. And then, you know, and then you mentioned Americans express dissatisfaction with the education system overall, but cling to their local public schools with the religiosity of a nun. I love the way you write and love the way that you get right to the point and you say these things. Like, so, so that big vision, I'm wondering what you're learning about, like how to, you know, how to take that big vision and, and get get there or to move it alongside or to gather people to say, Hey, you know what? Like, you know, there is this big vision for all of us. And, and there's a, there's, there's a place where we want to see the thriving of each and every kid and each and every community. Yeah. I think it's a complex question The the, you know, and I don't want to sidestep it, but the way that I would answer it is, Individually, as citizens, a good citizen, I think we have to start demanding more of of any leader that wants our support. We need to start like punishing them when they are selling us small visions, and start rewarding them when they are thinking the you know big thoughts about the whole, how we all do better. Um, so individually, for instance, like I don't think any mayor in the United States should should actually be able to win the the that office without in, encountering tough questions from citizens about what they're going to do for children and how they're going to make their city a world-class city for learning for the kids in their jurisdiction, right? Like the the idea that mayors and city council members and others get to wipe their hands clean of the children in their jurisdiction 
that's a local level of democracy where each of us can have some impact. We may not be able to change what presidents do right away, but we definitely can have an impact on mayors and city council members and school board members and local democracy. So the first part is just getting involved. One, becoming informed and two, becoming involved. Um, and you know, researchers and others, I think they have a job to do in terms of making things simple and communicating with the public on a regular basis, right? Like making things simple about what's working and what works, promising and hopeful ideas. That's the other thing. Like our research can't all be negative focused research. Oh my God, the gaps are so big or, oh my God, look what isn't working. Whatever it takes a special kind of fool to just talk about what isn't working and never get to the part about what might offer hope. And the hope should be based on research. So very smart people need to stop advocating their duty because we have a moron problem in the United States right now. We have a vast moron problem. And I think all of education should be about ignorance reduction, right? Like, so we are failing mightily and thinking people are oftentimes really trying to be morons in drag. They're like trying to dumb themselves down. We have Ivy League people with Ivy League educations trying to talk like they're Joe the plumber. That's actually a problem. That's not the aspiration of the United States. That's not the thing we should want from leaders from researchers, from thinkers. What I want to know is give me the platform that I can agree with, whether I'm Republican, Democrat, uh, Hindu, Muslim, Christian, whatever. And I think that's going to ride on things like great teachers matter, great instruction matters, um, uh, coherent educational philosophies in a school matters, how you use staffing time and budget matters. These things are apolitical. These things require experts to jump in. And and so I think, you know, when you ask what can we do, I, I feel like a big part of it is to put the heat on the discussion being about those things. How do we have great teachers in every classroom? Where do they come from? How are they prepared? How are they supported? How do we know they're they're working? How do we know it's working for them? Um, what curriculum? Um, we're having a nationwide discussion right now that is just emerging after like 50 years about how we should talk about reading. Not just how we should talk about it, how, how we should teach it. Can you imagine it took like 50 years to get to the point where we're asking a question like that in the United States? Meanwhile, you know, it's like my grandmother's problem. My grandmother used to say, we could put a man on the moon, but we can't, you know, and she would fill in the blank with something that was like, you know, less complicated than putting a man on the moon. That's the way I feel about things like we're just now getting around to a debate really about like the fact that we've been teaching reading wrong and that science has been telling us that for years and that there was a better way to do it all along and we could have had the conversation. Now, who has ran for office on we're going to get all of America reading? Like anywhere. What governor, what, you know, yes, I've seen people run on we're going to tell you who to hate. I haven't heard anybody run on we're going to get all of America reading. We're going to be the we're going to be the leader in the world in reading. And once we become that, that's going to open the doors to students who better understand all the other subjects because they can read now. Right. That's what I want. Um, and I think we can't make that happen tomorrow, but in small ways we can say, what, what can Cincinnati do to get kids reading? If I'm a, you know, uh, I'm a Minnesotan, what can Minnesotan do? Minnesotans do. So as a citizen, I'm going to have my own portfolio of things I need to press um, elected people on, you know, and leaders on, including school leaders. So I hope I didn't sidestep the question, except to say it's really complicated around what can you do to get people into a more, you know, productive conversation, but we can do little things. Yeah. 
Well, it, it, it's interesting is, is, you know, even the simplification of it, you know, we, we talk quite a bit in, in our, in our work and what we do, um, because there's this classic statement that, that happened to my colleague, um, where a policy analyst in, um, DC during the NCLB days, you know, who had nothing to do with schools, no knowledge of schools, never been in a classroom, talked about, we need to decomplexify this for teachers. Mm. And, and and his whole point was like you just made up a word that replaces simplify, and and and, and as a policy person, you're going to do this to teachers. You're not going to do this with them. And so for he and I, and for you know our friends and some of us who who are who are educators, classroom teachers that kind of moved into different places and said, hey, we want to have greater impact, or we want to see these good things like you're talking about. Where do we go? How do we do it? And how do we connect? And so I appreciate like, you know, the, the simplification of it. Your thing is like, like we've got to get beyond the ignorance of it, you know, that, 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 and then, and then mm-hmm. the, I think that the thing like too, that I've been focusing on is, is from fear to hope, right? How do we, how do we get past the fear into the hope and to say, Hey, and to highlight, I think that's one of the things that, that, that I've gotten into is that I'm not going to highlight the problems. I'm going to highlight where the hope is. I'm going to highlight where the good work is. Mm-hmm. I'm going to highlight those types of things. So maybe last question as we close up or a two-part question, mm-hmm. because you've been on a school board and school board people are getting hammered, whether it's, whether it's public schools or private schools. Cause I have friends that are on private school boards and I have friends that are on public school boards. What would you say to people say, Hey, you know what? Jump in. Or how, what would be your hopeful encouragement to people to jump in? And then maybe as we close out, give us one place where recently maybe you've come across a place where it's like, you know, this is a place or this is something where I see hope. Mm, that's a, that's a tougher one. That second part. And when you say jump in, do you mean like jump into like run for school board or yeah, you know, yeah run, run, support, encourage, because, you know, it sounds like you couldn't have done it by yourself. Yeah, right? no. even in your story, right? So, you know, yeah. even if it's like, hey, I'm not going to run or I'm not going to be that school board member, but hey, what what might be some of the encouragements you'd give to people to say, hey, you, you either run, you know, jump into the work, support the work of of a friend, a colleague or or somebody that you agree with. Like what would maybe mm-hmm. be a couple points of encouragement that people can kind of take with them? No, I think the question you asked earlier about the citizen thing, like, what does it take to be a good citizen? I can't think of anything that makes, you know, um, for a better citizen than somebody that gets involved where they can in the democracy, find the on-ramp to participate. And everybody is working. People have, you know, busy schedules. You can't do everything. You can't boil the ocean. So what are the things you can do? You can be supportive of your school board and, and, and educated. Let's start there. You don't have to be supportive. You can be educated about what your local school board is doing for kids. And you can watch the meetings. You can take notes. You can think about it. Uh, and then you can be an informed voter when it comes time to vote for people who run for school board. I would actually hope you just keep graduating up like, you know, white belt, you know, and yellow belt and keep going up the list, you know, because, you know, the, that the, what I just described maybe are, is in white belt te- territory. But, you know, as you move up the belts, you know, you can start supporting candidates directly who run because when you run for school board, it's very lonely. You need help. You need other citizens around you. As a matter of fact, the first thing you need to win and to be good are other people around you. 
helping you, right? Uh, and I had a lot of that when I ran. And then, you know, I moving up the belts, I hope that good, competent, good faith people who um, understand argumentation and understand uh, governance and diplomacy uh, bring their skills to school boards, like run. Like it's one of the most accessible parts of the democracy. This isn't like running for mayor or something like that. This is kind of closer to jury duty in my mind than running for a partisan office. This is like just something, you know, listen, you're an accountant. Actually, school boards need like accounting as, you know, uh, the, as a skill set on the board. Uh, maybe you do strategy for businesses or whatnot. Some of the best people I was involved with when I was on the school board were people that like worked a real job every day and just decided, listen, my kids are in these schools. I'm going to bring some of my skills because obviously the board needs it, right? <laughs> like those are some of the coolest people that I met because they're like, listen, I work at, you know, RBC Dane during the day or whatever. I understand how budgets work and all this stuff. And you guys are just killing me when I watch your board meetings and I have kids in this school, I'm running for school board. And that to me was an amazing thing to watch happen. So that's how I'd answer that question is get involved where you can get involved. The other thing though, I think that you mentioned that I think is probably more important than anything that I do every day, which is that I need to do more of, I should say, I do do it a little bit. And that is we do, the public gets um, negative fatigue over time. So if we can't point to things that are working, that show promise, and the kids that are beating the odds, um, the teachers that are beating the odds, the programs that are doing better than others, we're going to lose the public constantly because people don't want to listen to nothing. Well, I mean, some people, many people don't want to listen to a common stream of negative stuff. We do have the people that like thrive on the outrage of the day, but um but keeping the focus on the hope that's backed by research, I think, is probably a strategy I underuse even um, because there's so much wrong to go through, right? Like there's so much broken. Um, but I like what you said just really about trying to focus the public on things that like like small things that they can do, that they can get involved with and where the hope is. The one thing, if you are going to run for school board, I hope you do. So when I ran, I really dug in on the issues. Like I did not want to be one of those people that is just running for an office. I wanted to have a set of ideas that I thought were really important. And I ran on a platform of safe, rigorous and uh, safe, orderly and rigorous schools. Uh, and I had an explanation for each of those things like safety, um, orderly and rigorous, like what I meant by those things. Uh, and I had an outcome of my agenda. So I would hope that people who run educate themselves and want to dig in on the issues. Chris, I, I I have so many more questions, but maybe another time. I, you know, and I really appreciate your time. How how do people get connected with you? Follow with you? What what would be some of those best places that they can learn more about your work and and more about your ideas? Yeah, I think you hit it at the top of the show. Find me on Twitter, Chris at you know Citizen Stewart at Citizen Stewart uh, on Twitter. Um, or you know you can always email me if you want to contact me directly, Chris at Brightbeam. Org, which is the organization that I work for. Hey, Chris, this is incredible. And then I'm coming to Minneapolis in, in the fall. So one, want to take you for dinner or a meal, but then also take you to my favorite school that I love spending time with. And it's aptly named Hope Academy. So I love going there and hanging out and seeing the work that they're doing. And, and so would love to, to meet you in person there. Well, I got you on dinner. Uh, uh, I'll take care of the dinner. You'll be in my territory, in my backyard. And I always love a school visit, which is the other thing that I would say to people listening and watching this, visit schools. 
Don't just talk about schools. Go visit. Go um, read to kindergartners. You want you want a life improving, uh, you know, mind calming situation. Go read to kindergartners, and it'll make your day. It'll make your week. Uh, so I love you. Uh, I love uh, your idea on both accounts. Let's have dinner and let's visit a school. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Have a good.